listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Everyone else, please open your Bible with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're in a series called Chosen Sojourners, and every single week we're learning about three ever-present truths that never change, that must shape our thinking. Jesus is our living hope. In this present life, we will face present suffering, and we are awaiting future glory. Peter keeps going over these three realities, and these are true for every Christian, and the emphasis this week is on something that we don't naturally like to think about. So I want to give you five seconds, hopefully you're there in First Peter, but I want to give you five seconds to think of something that you hate thinking about. All right, ready? Go. Naturally hate thinking about this. You don't want to think about it right now. All right, you got something? Anybody think of the end of the world? (laughs) Okay, yes, I see that hand. I said naturally. I mean, I know it's kind of a trick question. Some of us do think about that. I get get that. But we don't naturally want to just think about the end of of the world as we know it. That's, That's a little bit scary to think about that at times. No one really enjoys that. You have to grow into that in the very least. Well, 1 Peter 4, verse 7 is where we left off. And verse 7 begins with this phrase. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And I'm just going to stop right there with that first phrase before we go any further with the message today. The end of all things is at hand? Wait a minute. If you're keeping score at home, when did Peter write this? Over 2,000 years ago, right? Unbelievers have gotten a lot of miles out of this one. And as a matter of fact, those same skeptical voices were saying the same things back then that they're saying now. This is, this is, uh, this is something that when you're a Christian and you believe, hey, we're living in the, the last days, people look at you with, and, and if they don't know Jesus Christ, they don't understand what's going on in this world, They just scratch their heads like, what do you mean? Christians have always been saying that. For 2,000 years, Christians have been saying, the end of all things is at hand. So what do you do with that? At the end of his second letter, Peter actually addresses this very, very point. Uh, So I want you to turn there to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to have a little uh, appetizer here before we get into, into 1 Peter chapter 4. But look with me at, first, at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. And I want to read 10 verses for you because Peter actually addresses this and he gives us the best answer we could possibly have for that question that many of us do have. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years in a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I will preach a sermon from this text one day whenever we get to 2 Peter. But when you get asked that question, and when you have that same question yourself, why did the apostles expect the imminent return of Jesus Christ? And where is he? It's been a long time since Jesus was here. It's been 2,000 years. What gives? Well, notice the three, the three things that Peter says there in this passage I just read. Number one, you don't really want to see the end of the world. Thousands of years ago, this earth was flooded with water, and one day this earth will burn up with fire. So much for preserving our environment, I guess. I mean, <laughs> some people, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. That's not right either. I mean, people, some people will take that, a point, that approach. We're to be good stewards and subdue the earth. That's what Genesis teaches from the very beginning. The earth is for humans. We are the pinnacle of his creation. It's for us to enjoy. So we should absolutely take care of creation. We are stewards of this earth, but we also don't worship the earth. And we don't make our lives subservient for the earth. We are to use the natural resources with our God-given creativity and ingenuity. And we have to know that this present earth is not our only vehicle right? One day we're going to get a new car model and we're going to trade it in and we're going to get a better new earth, <laughs> new heavens and a new earth. So that's the first, that's the first thing that Peter's point, pointing out to you. Um, you don't really want to see the end of the world. Hopefully you're not around for that. Number two, don't overlook another fact, and that is this. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. God is not bound by our linear timeline. He is on his own clock. He is above all of that. And number three, the reason he's so patient in verse nine is because he desires for you to repent. He doesn't want you to die and live in eternal separation from him. 
And he, his desire is to give you as many opportunities as possible. So Peter and all the apostles were waiting on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And even though it's been a really long time, that's the posture of the New Testament church. And that should be our posture as well. That's the outlook. This could happen at any time, any hour of any day. We do not know. No one knows the day or the hour. And God could send revival. And that would be amazing. If God sent revival to our nation that spread throughout the world and, and, and time moved on and things didn't continue to go down, that would be awesome. We would love that. God has done that many times. He sent revival. When people thought, oh, this is the darkest days I've ever been in. This must be close to the end. And God in his mercy extends. Praise the Lord for that. He could do that again. And I'm praying that he will do that again. But he knows the final day of judgment. And only he knows that. So in the big picture, we are in the last days. And it doesn't matter that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ walked on this earth. If you go back before then, there was a lot of thousands, many thousands of years before Jesus came, right? This is the final chapter because the next thing we're waiting for is the second coming of our Savior Jesus Christ to this earth. So just the fact that we're in that time period means these are the last days. And it may go a thousand years longer. I don't know. It would still fit in with the timeline that God has. His overarching timeline. So the end is, at, end is near. What can you do about it? Because the end is near, what are we to do? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Jesus is our living hope. We're facing present suffering and there's future glory awaiting us. But in the meantime, Peter's message for right now is not to bunker down and get defensive, get in defense mode, shield yourself from, from everything that's bad out there, and look down on the lost. Have we been seeing anything even remotely close to that in this letter? Not at all. It isn't for you to fight for your rights on this present earth. And live as if this life is all you have to put your hopes and dreams in. Again, not what we've been seeing in this entire letter. His message that we have been seeing week in, week out, and the thing that we're going to focus on this morning is so much more exciting. Yeah, you're living in present suffering? Well, I want you to turn that on its head, weaponize your pain, and use it as a threat to the darkness. Doesn't that sound exciting? It sounds a whole lot better than just playing it safe and being back here on defense, right? It's to get active. So would you read the text fully with me today? We're going to go past just the first phrase. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And let's read all the way through to verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First point today is very simple. Pray fervently. We're getting that from verse 7. And I want you to notice that this first point isn't some, I mean, we just set this up with like the end of the world, right? (laughs) The end is near. Let's do this. And then pray fervently. And those of you who know what prayer is and the power of prayer, you're like, yes, give me more of this. Let's go. I dare say I've been in this camp. A lot of you are thinking, come on now. What a church thing to say. Here goes the pastor. He's going to. It's going to make me feel bad about my prayer life again. Oh, my goodness. Here we go again. Listen. This isn't David's point one. This is is where Peter goes with this. This is how he starts. Pray fervently. And I know it's, it's something you've heard before. I know you've tried this before. But it's as simple as that. And I may as well let you know this now. This entire sermon... There is nothing earth-shattering new that if you've been in church before, you've probably heard. You've been to one service, you've probably heard the points that we have today from 1 Peter chapter 4. At the same time, even though there's nothing new here, there is richness in following these verses afresh and being reminded of them in a new way. And I think we live in a culture that thinks and operates with this idea that there always has to be something new for it to be better. Are you with me on that? Do you see that out there? So it doesn't matter if you have to bend the established order or if you have to just break canon. Uh, We can't just tell fresh stories with the same old characters and delve deeper into their complexities. Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to change and modify those characters to adapt with our new wave of enlightenment if we want to tell a new story. And forget the art of storytelling. Let's just push this message across and maybe we have to work in some some representation or some cross-sectional characters. The story won't be interesting if we don't do that. If you've seen that or felt that in the world, in our culture today, you know what I'm talking about. In entertainment or in educational theory or if you're a Star Wars fan, you've probably felt all that. But, but this is what I want everyone to hear. There's no such thing as a new truth or a new undiscovered method to get close to God. You don't have to create this new idea that no one ever thought of before or, or make it all shiny. This is what works right here. This is God's simple plan. You want to turn darkness on its head and weaponize your pain to become a threat to the darkness? It all starts with praying fervently, right there. So all of the points today are right on the heels of last week's message, spiritual warfare, right? What is spiritual warfare? It's a battle for truth in your mind. And we're going to see these three specific ways that you can weaponize your pain and turn it into a threat for the darkness. Shine the love of Jesus Christ into this hopeless world. And it all begins with prayer. I know it's not that flashy, but it works. And I heard someone say last week that 
and I, I don't, I'm not quoting them word for word here, but they said something to the effect of, if we only knew how powerful our prayers were, we would hardly do anything else but pray. That's how, because that, prayer moves God. God listens and God acts. He, he, want, he desires to have this relationship with us, right? That's why he created us. So we can glorify him and, and we can be in relation with him. And when we commune with him and talk to him in prayer, we are living the way we were intended to live, to be in communication and relationship with him. So he's not looking for flashy. He's looking for humble servants. And when you do the simple things that are outlined in this passage, it works. So the concept of praying consistently, having an open dialogue with God, it is all throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says to pray without ceasing. And then another 5.16, James 5.16 says fervent prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Or maybe your translation says has great power as it is working. Prayer is the lifeblood of your relationship with God because it's how you communicate directly to God. And then he speaks back to you through the Holy Spirit, through the reading of his word. He does that in a variety of ways through his word and, 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 and just in relation with him. But fervent prayer, this is that, that word fervent literally means it grows so hot, it glows. It, it gives this idea of white hot prayer. So this is the opposite of phoning it in and kicking it in cruise control which is very easy to do if you don't mix up your prayer life at times and really think about what you're doing. And I want to I want to just go there today. All right, I want to step on some toes on this for a second, okay? But but have you ever heard sloppy lazy prayers that are just literally routine, mindless, almost almost vain repetition like? Have you ever heard those? Dear God, thank you for this day. Oh boy, <laughs> I told you I was going to step on some toes. Uh, God, I just pray that you will do this, and God, I just pray that you will do this, and God, I just pray. Okay, that's kind of weird. That's not a normal way to communicate to someone, is it? The only reason I'm telling you this is not to make you shy and embarrassed to pray in front of other people. I don't want to do that, okay? I'm just trying to point out to you the difference between a fervent prayer life and one that is just mailing it in, just going through the motions because that's what I'm supposed to do. And I've been there before. I think we've all, every single person in this room has been guilty of this before, of not really fully grasping and weighing like how amazing this is that I'm going before the throne of grace. I'm talking to my creator. This is a sovereign, reverent thing that we can do. And also, amazingly, he calls us his friend and, and he has adopted us into his family, and we can talk to him at any time. I know it's, it's confusing because it's like almost an oxymoron. Here it is, the creator of the universe. I'm going before the throne of grace. I don't deserve to even have this conversation. And yet, he wants to talk to us all the time. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that we can't really wrap our minds around. But here's exactly what's holding back many times What's holding back Christians from having a thriving, ongoing, revitalizing, hope-filled, bold prayer relationship with God? What does the text say? No self-control 
and you're not sober-minded. So let's talk about self-control first. We know what that is, right? We, we all know what self-control is. It's not eating that entire can of Pringles. Like, you, you, you stop, like, somehow a third of the way down the, the can of Pringles. That is self-control. Self-control is not spending all the rest of your paycheck on those shoes that you don't need because you know you, have, you need to set aside some for a rainy day. Self-control is simply just not doing everything you want to do in the moment because you know if you wait, there's something better in store. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's to go on a better vacation. Self-control is a discipline. And anyone who uses it, this is part of God's common grace. You don't have to even be a believer. If you exercise self-control, you will benefit from it. It's a universal principle of God's created order. No self-control equals more pain. Self-control equals more blessing and enjoyment in life. Anyone can tell you that, but this is what Peter is telling the church. Have self-control, not so you can have a better life here on earth. Be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Are you with me on this? Are we tracking here? If you want to just go run ahead, take it all by storm, guess what? You're doing it in your strength. You're not tapping into the power of God, and you will eventually grow frustrated or crash. Being sober-minded, and I, and I want to help us with this one. Being sober-minded doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life and smile and laugh. That's a, that's a false idea from Satan. Being sober-minded goes hand-in-hand hand here with this idea of self-control. And it simply means you look beyond temporary satisfaction and what's in it for me right now and how does it make me feel and you consider the ramifications. Being sober-minded means you know good and well we live in a dark world. There are evil people out there who will take advantage of you and being sober-minded means also I'm not going to just stick my head in the sand, cover up your ears, and, and just try to tune out all the big, bad, scary stuff out there. Do Christians do that? They do that all the time. They get in their own Christian world, their little Christian bubble, or they just like focus on their family and all the great things. They just try to avoid the bad. There's a lot of different ways you can go wrong here with, with the lack of self-control, lack of sober-mindedness, but we can't get so wrapped up in sports or hobbies or entertainment that those good things go beyond just refreshing us or giving us a platform to shine light, and those good things can turn into something that overwhelms the best thing, right? That's a whole part of this self-control being sober-mindedness. Don't let the temporal pursuits of a game or hobby or a passion suffocate you to the point that you no longer take your calling seriously. If that's happening, then you have a problem. So look at that verse again, verse 7. And underline this if you need to. Be sober-minded and be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Because here's where the rubber really meets the road. If you're not thinking this way, you're carrying something that you're not meant to carry in life. That's life without prayer. And I, I'm trying to help you see that you don't need to carry 
what's supposed to carry you. Have you ever seen a kid try to ride a bike up a hill and this kid is just starting to ride a bike? Have you ever seen this? This is true with Beckham and uh, it's true with Paxson right now. It's not really true with Monroe because she still has the training wheels and she still like would rather just get pushed in a stroller uh, than, than ride a bike. But with Paxton, and please don't tell him I said this <laughs> afterwards, but with Paxton, he, he comes to a big hill and he's like, oh no, I can't pedal up this hill. So he gets off of his bike and he pushes the bike up the hill. He's carrying something that's meant to carry him, right? If he just pedaled a little bit harder, got up in momentum, he would make it. With our prayer life, when we're not self-controlled, when we're not sober-minded, we're just trying to like, gutted out ourselves, and we're not going to God in prayer, we're trying to carry things that if we just went to God in prayer and handed it over to him, he would carry us through that. It's very important that we don't, we don't be a little kid and just not pedal when we, when we really can. When we forsake our prayer relationship with God, we carry something that we could just hand over to God. And another thing that is meant to carry you is, is your relationships with other people in the church. There's joy, there's satisfaction as you love and serve one another. Your church is meant to be a group of life-giving people that build you up. Yes, you go and you hear the word of God, you use your gifts, but there's so many people who, they just make it a work. They get stressed. They add to it. They get offended. They, they put more on their plate than they need to. And they carry something that was actually meant to carry them. Stay self-controlled. Stay sober-minded. This is just basically saying, to use another passage of Scripture, abide in the vine. And feel the power that comes when you remain. If you remember back to our, our series in John. And I know we've just covered one verse so far. We're going to really have to pick this up. But this truly does set up the rest of this passage. Here's the second point. The second way that you weaponize your pain to become a threat to the darkness is the natural overflow of prayer. Number two, love deeply. Verses eight and nine. Look at those again with me. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So there's three different things here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Let love cover a multitude of sins and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And if you're wondering, the version of love here that Peter is using in this passage is agape. That's, that's, it's the Greek word agape, which is an action verb that's not based on feelings at all. This is a self-sacrificing type of love that is a choice. I'm going to show love to that person. I've decided that I'm going to do that. Not because they've earned it, but because I want to. And the only way you can choose to love someone in an active sense, not in a re reactionary sense where like, hey, um, they're great to me, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll love them back. The only way you make that action verb decision to do that kind of love, agape love, is to know the love of God first. When you know that's what Jesus did for you. This is, God sent his son for you. He chose you. And you love because he first loved you. Now the next word translated earnestly 
You know, that isn't used very much in the modern, in modern English. Guess what other translations say there? They say deeply or fervently, because it's all the same idea. It's that word again, fervently. This is going beyond the surface level. This isn't just being nice and having fun with the attractive people who you get along with. It's not that at all. This is loving someone with a deep, fervent, white-hot love that's for their soul. It, it goes deeper than the body. It goes all the way to the soul. Not just for the advantages or fun that they offer. So when you love fervently, you allow love to cover a multitude of sins. Again, we have this word, this Greek word plethos, which is where we get the idea of plethora. When you get past the surface level and you start loving people for who they really are, guess what happens? You start seeing some junk surface. You start seeing some like not so beautiful things come out because you're truly loving that person and it's past the surface level. So you see a problem and now instead of just revealing that and airing their dirty laundry for all the world to see, can you believe this guy? Can you believe what she said to me? Well, I'm gonna let them know. No, let love cover a multitude of sins. And let me make this very clear. This is not saying that you need to hide sin. Of course not. This wouldn't be contradicting scripture. Sin needs to be exposed. It should be brought into the light in an appropriate way. I mean, if it's a private sin, take it to God. Absolutely. It's between you and God. Deal with it with God. If it's affecting someone else, well, let's get this right. That means you may have to confess that to someone else. You may have to make it right and have a conversation with, with the person who you sinned against. But the concept of love that Peter is teaching right here is you don't expose everyone's mess all the time just to pick a fight and just to correct the world and make sure everyone's doing the right thing. You see that? We're loving people deeply and we're not trying to add fuel to the fire and expose people. We don't go to war on every issue. Sometimes you just love the person despite their flaws and then you leave it in the hands of God to change their heart. Now, I love that this verse goes straight into the most relevant application. If you really want to know if you're loving people well, here's the next question that Peter implies. How hospitable are you? You see where I got that from the text? Peter just flows right into this. He's talking about letting love cover a multitude of sins, and then he just starts praising the people for, for hospitality. If you have hospitality, don't do this without grumbling. There's no better, no better way to show love than to show hospitality and to love doing it. And I know this may mean that some of us are going to have to actually clean our house. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't just mean that, though, really. I mean, we have, we have a very hospitable church, I have to say. I can't really cover this without just highlighting. There are so many people. Shout out to all the Life Group Leader hosts. Y'all like clean the house every, every week, get people over. Like a lot of people in this church are incredibly hospitable. You know, you have a, you have a free night, like let's get together, let's go, go to dinner and let's, 
Let's go hang out together. I mean, people, you, you don't just have to have people over to your house for dinner either. I mean, that's great. But let's say you don't have the space, you don't have the money to do that. Send an invitation to something else, right? Being hospitable also means you share your time. And I love that. I mean, we had somebody in our church invite us over on Friday night for dinner. Thank you. That was so hospitable. Our family loved that. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and lots of people in this church do that. Keep that up. But I, I want you to point out, I want to point out here that there's still, of course, room to grow in this area. There's always room to grow. The most isolated demographic group in our country is 18 to 24-year-olds. That may sound a little inconsistent with, you know, technology and social media platforms. And I mean, aren't 18 to 24-year-olds the ones that are just like, like in school or, you know, they're, they're always around other people their age, right? That's the most isolated, depressed, and lonely group out there. And I, I think a big reason for that is because of technology and the phones and, the, and all of the social apps out there. That, don't, that cannot replace a real face-to-face -face conversation because it doesn't go to the heart level. I saw there was a study that was done just a couple years ago at Yale University. It said 60% of the campus at Yale University felt socially isolated. Are you socially isolated? 60% said yes. Something's wrong with our culture there, right? In our world. So the fastest way and really the easiest way for you to show love and show care is to extend an invitation and be hospitable with your time with other people. Start showing up to a life group. And I know, I know this one, again, I'm, this is one of those sermons where I'm just stepping on people's toes. But if you want to have friends, you want to get to know people on a deeper level, you have to put yourself out there too. You actually have to make the effort to do that, and you have to, you have to prioritize that. Say, I, I'm going to actually extend myself and, and put myself in a position to have, have conversations and to get to know people on a deeper level. That's very important. So if you feel lonely, if you want to feel more loved, Peter's telling you what you need to do. Don't just wait on other people to come rescue you you start loving other people. And I know that's, that's hard for some of us, but listen, Jesus saved you to do hard things. And he's called you to do amazing things. And this is foundational. Start loving people, being hospitable, extending invitations, and watch how that changes your life. You'll feel it in return. The last point today fits in directly with this one. How can I love people more? David, please talk more about that. What does it look like? I don't have a very big house. I don't have a lot of extra funds. I'm poor. I'm super busy. I can barely go anywhere. Please help me out with this one. I, I want to do more on this whole hospitable, loving deeply concept. All right, thankfully, Peter has more to say about this. Look at verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
This is the third and final point on weaponizing your pain and becoming a threat to the darkness. Number three, serve selflessly. Of all of the, the, the points today, <laughs> we got pray fervently, love deeply, and serve selflessly. I know the headline isn't super flashy, right? I, I warned you about that. I told you these weren't glamorous, but these work. You want to make a difference in this world? You want to push back the darkness? And despite the present suffering that you're dealing with, you want to use your life to change this world for the good? Well, I got one better for you. Instead of just making, making this world better and doing good things in this world, God wants you not just to give people fish, but to teach them how to fish, right? Don't just fill their need. Give them the hope that you have. Share what you have experienced, a living hope, a promised future glory. So we're here for more than just feeding the hungry. We are here for more than just temporary justice. We are here to love people so much they see the love that we have. And they find life and joy and peace with their creator. So use your gifts not just for good, but for eternity. Share the life that you have with Christ. And there's a lot of spiritual gifts, gifts listed in Scripture. There's actually four main passages that, that have lists of gifts. This is one of them, 1 Peter 4. It's actually really easy to remember. You got 1 Peter 4, you got Ephesians 4, and then you have Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. So if you want to go look at all the spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture, just go to those four chapters. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. The interesting thing about all those lists is this. They're all different, and they all have at least one unique one that's not on any of the other three. So what this says to us is these lists aren't exhaustive. There's a lot of gifts that God gives. And yes, some of those are listed in Scripture, but you get enough of them to realize, okay, the talent that God has given me, these gifts, my personality, what I'm naturally, uh, what I naturally like lean into, and I really thrive in it, and I love that. I guarantee you that's connected to your spiritual gift. And and the way Peter boils it down here is really two main categories, right? He talks about speaking gifts and he talks about serving gifts. Two different ones that we can use to bring glory to God. Whoever speaks, whoever speaks, remember that as a Christian, your goal should be to, sp to speak the truth of God. You're speaking oracles of God. You're speaking truth on behalf of God. You're, you're his mouthpiece in this world. And whoever serves, do it in his strength. So we're not just to say what we want to say. You're gifted to speak God's message. You have his revelation and you are his ambassador. That's what your goal is to communicate. And whoever serves, do it in his strength. God hasn't gifted you solely for your own personal enjoyment. Use that gift of speaking for his glory. Where do you fit in? You fit in by affecting and influencing other people. And as I was actually 
praying about this passage just this morning. You know, I wrote the sermon, prepared the sermon, been studying this all week. I'm always praying up until like I come up here, like, Lord, if there's something that I missed, please just, just show me. I want, I want to communicate your, your message here this morning. And I had one of those moments in the shower this morning where I was thinking about this passage and, uh, and it just hit me that we exist in a church to use our gifts. I mean, what's the main reason we come to church? It's to worship God, right? That's what we're here for. We're, this is a worship service to God, first and foremost. Secondly, and this is where people get it mixed up, it's not just so I can fill myself up and be fed and, and feel better. And, and, and that's part of it. But before that, you actually, I mean, what is this passage talking about? It's talking about using your gifts to serve one another. The church gathers, yes, we worship Christ, and then we scatter, we go out into this world, but we are to build one another up in love. It's everywhere in the New Testament, everywhere. So we have a cancer in the body of the American church that's called self-centered consumerism. And people don't think the right way about church. They think, what's in it for me? Or they think, well, this person didn't say that, or this person should have said this, and they offended me, and they didn't love me well enough. What am I doing here? What's the emphasis here? It's on you, right? It's not on God. It's not on you using your gifts to spread them throughout the entire body. We don't need any more cancerous cells in the body that spread the wrong message, right? It's not about you. It's not about what you are doing here. It's about what you are bringing to the table. Now, of course, there's, there's an element where you should be fed. And, and, and the teaching should be coming from the Bible, right? Absolutely. I, I want you to be fed. And, and I, I hope you do. I hope you are. You do need to get something out of it, too. But it's what people miss is you get more out of it yourself if you do these first two things. If you gather to worship Christ and you also use your gifts to serve other people, that third element was just gonna naturally fall into place. You will be fed. You will receive blessing. You will grow when you do those first two things. So that's the end of that commercial. But uh, <laughs> that, was, that was just something that I, I couldn't let go of. I don't know who that was for today. Maybe... It was probably for someone. But do you have the mental posture of selflessly serving others in church? Or are you just here to receive something? Please just think about that. It's not, you're not just here for yourself. Your actions affect other people in a big way. Verse 10, back to the text here. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Here's another crucial thought about all of this, and this is really my last thought. If you have an administrative gift or a supportive gift, you have to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory. Look at verse 11 again. It says there, verse 11, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That's what I want to emphasize. 
You can underline that in your Bible if you need to. The power to serve selflessly comes when you remain in Christ. It doesn't come when you strain on your own. I hope you can see that. So often when we want to do something, we strain and push and strive and grit our teeth and, and, and try harder. Push. Let's do it. Let's get it done. Let's go. We got to make this perfect. Does that ever work in the end? No. Oh. And I know I'm talking to all the perfectionists out there and the achievers out there who like things to be. Of course, we want to do things excellently for the glory of God in everything we do. Absolutely. But you must remain and abide in Christ. You're not, you're not here to strive. You're here to abide. Good stuff happens when you remain in Christ and you abide in the vine. Just think about John 15 for a minute, abiding in Christ, right? He is the vine. We are the branches. What happens to the fruit when that branch is broken off from the vine, all right? Take your grapes, are any more good grapes going to be produced from that branch if the branch is not connected to the vine? How many, how many good grapes are going to come out of that branch? Zero. Zero. You're not going to produce good fruit if you are disconnected from the source of your strength, the vine. Abide in the vine. Be a branch that is connected to the power source. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The vine makes the grapes, not the branch. The branch is a conduit of what is coming from the vine. And prayer keeps you connected to the vine. See why we spent so much time in prayer at the beginning of this message? The result of all of this is love. And this is how you administer that love. By using your gifts to serve one another for the glory of God. This section of scripture really has four things going on. People, prayer, your part, and the undercurrent of all of it in this whole passage is pain. So in your pain, you have prayer to God, you love people, and you use your gift and you do your part. There's an old pastor named J. Vernon McGee. Some of you may have heard of him on the radio. He said that the Christian life is like a banquet, but it's not a picnic. It's like a banquet. There's a lot of blessings. There's a lot of great things going on, but it's no picnic either. And walking with Jesus is hard in this present life. But walking without Jesus is much harder. Walking with Jesus is hard. Walking without Jesus is much harder. So while you're dealing with pain, and that could be loneliness, that could be family drama, that could be the consequences that you're still dealing with from a mistake that you made in the past, but while you're in pain, you can still do your part. You can love people, and you can abide in the vine, and you can bring glory to God. And this is where I know it's, it's hard sometimes just to trust people. You've been hurt by people, things have happened in the past, and you don't trust people. I, I understand it. A lot of people are there. I get that. When you're dealing with pain, and it's going to happen for as long as we're down here in this, this present world, life as we know it, here's the thing. You still have to love people. 
And what Peter is saying is the end is near. And if you don't trust anybody, if you never open yourself up to anyone, you can't love them. I had a pastor friend of mine tell me earlier this year that as a pastor, the reason you open yourself up and trust people is not because if you do that, they will never let you down. And if you love them well enough, everything will always go smooth. The reason you open yourself up and you trust people and you put yourself out there is not so you won't ever get hurt or because they're trustworthy. The reason you love people and open yourself up and, and, and trust them and go, go after them is because you can't love them without doing that. It's the only way to love people. Give God your pain, hand your doubts over to him, and yes, the end is near. We won't be around for long, but you don't know how long that person will be in your life that you can impact and you can share the love of God with. We just have to remember these three truths. Pray fervently, love deeply, and serve selflessly. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.